Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Our study through the Gospel of Matthew has brought us to Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Matthew 26, 31. Last week we saw Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Passover meal in the upper room. We're, we're right at the, the, the night before the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. During this meal, Jesus proclaimed to his 12 disciples that one of them would betray him. Of course, he knew it was Judas. He knew what was in Judas's heart. He knew the schemes that Judas had already, uh, the arrangement he'd already made with the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish, Jewish council. As a matter of fact, he dismissed Judas from the meal. And then there with the 11, Jesus instituted, in the midst of that Passover meal, he instituted the Lord's Supper, a new meal of remembrance as he was about to establish the new covenant. He explained how he would lay down his life for the sins of his people. And today in God's word, uh, we're coming to a powerful passage and we're going to be reminded of some important truths. Today we're going to see the humanity of Jesus. And that's, that's important. We need to remember that. We need to hold to that firmly. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. That he, the eternal Son of God became a man. That it's not that Jesus just appeared to be human as previous heresies have, have put forth. No, the Son of God became a man. He died as a man he rose again as in a glorified body. He is still fully man and fully God. From God's word today, we're also going to witness the anguish of the sufferings of Jesus. And what a, what a, a challenging topic to try to put our minds around. A challenging truth to try to put our minds around. How much Christ would suffer for his people. And what that was like as he came face to face with that reality. He was about to suffer like no one else had ever suffered. No one else would ever suffer. And then also we're going to see the triumph of Jesus. As Jesus embraces and moves forward with the suffering that he is called to endure. And so I'd ask the congregation to stand with me please. In honor of God's word. And please follow along as I read the text from God's word that we're going to study today. I'll begin in verse 30 of Matthew chapter 26. Let's hear the word of God together. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, 
My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And all the disciples fled from him. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is Failure of the Disciples versus the Triumph of Christ. As I studied this passage, those were the two themes, the two threads that I just saw in stark contrast to one another. You have the failure of the disciples, but it, against that backdrop, you have the glorious triumph of Christ. Where we see the disciples failing, we're going to see Jesus powerfully triumphing, if that's a word. I think it is. We're going to see Jesus powerfully obeying we're going to see him obediently embracing the Father's will in the midst of suffering, in the midst of anguish, in the midst of betrayal and desertion. We're going to see Jesus be faithful where the disciples are unfaithful. So praise God for his word this morning to which we can look. And may the Spirit open our eyes and captivate our hearts to see the glory and the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 30 says, Jesus and the eleven went out to the Mount of Olives just east of Jerusalem, where Jesus made another sober declaration in verse 31. Remember, just earlier he had, he had made the, the declaration that one of them would betray him. Well, now he makes another sober declaration. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He tells them, You're, You will all fall away. And that verb, fall away, means to cause to stumble. So you can hear that there's a passive sense to it. It doesn't mean that the disciples are going to willfully defect but it means that external factors are going to act upon them and cause them to stumble, to fall. Jesus here is not saying that they're going to abandon the faith completely, but that they're going to have a grievous lapse in their loyalty to Jesus. And, and again, that's part of the sufferings of Christ, right? No doubt this was going to be very painful to Jesus. Painful for him to see. It's probably painful for him to say. Right? These dear friends whom he poured his life into were going to desert him. 
But we see that, again, that Jesus is in control, that he's not going to be surprised, just like he's already, he already has declared that one of them will betray him. He's not going to be surprised when they all desert him. Why? Because he knows that it's God's will. He knows that he's fulfilling scripture. As we saw last week, we see it again here. He, in verse 31, he quotes from Zechariah 13, 7, to make the point that the striking of the shepherd, which he's the shepherd, right? The striking of the shepherd causes turmoil for the sheep. So in one sense, it's understandable why this is going to happen to them. But he says very soon the disciples will abandon Jesus. But you hear even um, some hope in this, right? Because all is not lost. In verse 32, he says, He will be raised and he will meet with them in Galilee. Now who knows if the disciples at this point are even comprehending what Jesus is saying about his resurrection. He's said it before, right? And they, they, they don't seem to be getting that. They're likely still reeling from all this information he's told them lately, right? About someone betraying them, about them all now deserting him. And we know that's what Peter was focused on at this point because look how he re- responds in verse 33. Though, he's telling to Jesus, though they all fall away, right? He throws all the other disciples under the bus here, kind of. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away, Peter says. Peter singles himself out from the other disciples, He says, even if all the other disciples desert Jesus, I will stay true to you, Peter declares. Jesus responds to Peter's, no doubt, well-intentioned, zealous, but foolish boast with a personal prediction for Peter. Verse 34, he said, Jesus said to him, can you imagine Jesus looking into Peter's eyes after he's just made this this?" The declaration of loyalty to Jesus. He says, truly, verse 34, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will deny me three times. Peter's told specifically what his abandonment of Jesus will look like. That that very night, Peter will deny association with Jesus three times. But Peter, he's undeterred, isn't he? He, he zealously doubles down here in verse 35. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And, you know, Peter was a, was a leader, really, right? You know, all the, all the other disciples said the same, it says. Peter and the, all the 11 there, right? Judas is not, he's gone. This is the 11. Peter and all the disciples declare their unwavering loyalty to Jesus saying they are ready to even die with him if that's what is asked of them, if that's what it requires. And again, I tried to just put myself in Jesus' shoes there for a second. I imagine, I'm imagining, right? Scripture doesn't say, I imagine he was touched by their earnest sincerity, but yet kind of sad too, right? But he knows, he knows that when the time comes, the disciples will in fact abandon him. And there's really nothing more to be said about that right now. So in verse 36, the scene shifts to the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at verse 36 with me. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. The Garden of Gethsemane was a field by the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane means olive press, so it was likely an olive orchard, so it's pretty easy for us to picture, right? No doubt this was a familiar spot. Jesus had, had very likely gathered with his disciples here before. Judas is going to know where it is. 
Um, but here's Jesus and the 11 disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus leaves most of them there, but he, we read in verse 37, he's going to take three of them further with him into the garden. Look at verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So Jesus takes his, what we often call his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. He takes these three with him. Why? Because this is a very difficult time for Jesus. We see he's, he's needing, he's asking for support, for companionship. And again, we, in, in, in this we, we see and are reminded of the humanity of Jesus. Right? Jesus was not some robot. He was not some emotionless stoic that was just kind of going through the, 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 the motions here of, of obeying God's will. No, he, he was a, a man. He was the God-man. Fully God, fully man. And here we see, the text tells us, he is sorrowful. He is troubled. In fact, so much so, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Now, Jesus is not one to just spout off hyperbole, right? I mean, he's saying, guys, I am so sad, I feel like I could die, right? Or kind of, you know, I'm, this is tearing me apart. It, I'm so sorrowful, it's killing me right now. Jesus is experiencing deep emotional pain and turmoil. Why? Because he knows what is, awaits him at the cross. He feels like he's going to die. The pain is so intense and so overwhelming. And so that's why he's asking his friends, these three, for support. He's not asking them to pray right now. He just says, watch with me. Just, just be there with me, right? Stay awake. Stay alert. I just need to know that you're, you're there supporting me right now. That you're with me through this. And we can understand that, can't we? When we go through a difficult time, a difficult trial, it's, it's very comforting to know that someone is there with you, that you're not going through it alone, that someone is supporting you. And Jesus here wants the same thing. Again, he was a human like us, though without sin. <laughs> Felt good to have the support of his close friends. And now then we, so he's, 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 called the three to, to support him, and now he's going to just separate himself from them, just as uh, one of the gospels say, as stones throw away, not very far, and he's going to go off and personally pray with the Father. He has some personal business to do with his heavenly Father. And so he goes just a little further into the garden, verse 39 says, and he fell on his face and prayed. So, again, you see the emotion here, right, in your mind's eye. We, we see from his posture that this is no routine prayer. Jesus is on his face before the Father. He's praying with deep emotion. He's desperate. He's dependent. And what does he pray? Verse 39. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, what's he talking about? What, what cup? 
Well, Jesus is referring to the the wrath of God. He's referring to the cup of God's holy wrath. The cup is a metaphorical way the Bible refers to the wrath of God against sin. And I'll define wrath in just a moment, but just understand that that's what the Bible, that's how the Bible speaks often of, of the wrath of God as a cup. For example, Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So this is the cup of the Father's wrath that is going to come upon Jesus as Jesus bears the sins of his people. Right? He, he's, just like he said when instituting the Lord's Supper, He's about to die in the place of his people. He's about to die as their substitute. He's going to stand in their place. And that means that all the sins of his people are about to be placed on him before God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So as our sins then are about to be, Jesus knows what what that's going to entail, right? That there on the cross, the sins of his people are going to be transferred to him. And that means he's going to bear the consequences of those sins. That means that he, Jesus, is going to experience the holy wrath of God. And so that's why he's praying with such deep emotion. That's why he's praying in agony here, in extreme anguish. That's why he's literally being torn up on the inside as he deals with the reality of what's about to happen in just a few hours. As he faces the wrath of God. And I said I would define wrath. Wrath is God's settled response against sin. The Bible declares God reveals himself in his word, that he is holy and righteous, and that sin is rebellion against his loving rule, that sin is an affront to God's righteous character, and that God's justice demands that sin be punished. And so wrath is not, is not a, a, a sinful response by God. Obviously, God doesn't sin, right? Wrath is not him just flying off the handle un, uncontrolled. No, wrath is his settled response that comes from his his holy character and so as jesus heads to the cross he knows that he's going to be mocked and beaten and physically tortured but i think what has christ most in anguish here in the garden was knowing that on the cross he will be cursed by god the father that for the first time in all eternity The Son would be separated from God the Father. God had always existed in in perfect, uh, as as three in one, in perfect fellowship. God, Father, Son, in a loving, um, unhindered relationship. But that was about to be broken on the cross. For the first time, the Son was going to be separated. Jesus was going to be forsaken by his own heavenly Father. And Jesus was going to be treated as the worst sinner who ever lived. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
And of course, Jesus has known this, right? I mean, he's known this as he headed for the cross. And he's been moving resolutely toward this climax, toward this event to fulfill his calling. But now, in the garden, the time has come. Now he's come face to face with what's about to happen. It's as if he's come face to face with this cup of divine wrath. That it's being placed right before him. And it's kind of like he's peeking into it, seeing what he's about to drink. And, and the foul horror of that cup just ta- causes Jesus and his humanity to recoil. Never had a cup so foul, so bitter, been handed to anyone. As Jesus is about to come under the, the cumulative wrath of Almighty God against the sins of all of his people. <laughs> Again, Jesus was about to become the greatest sinner who had ever lived. And Jesus, who had always enjoyed perfect, unhindered fellowship with the Father, was about to experience instead the unbridled wrath of God. And so what we see here in our text today, in the garden, is Christ's humanity recoiling at facing the wrath of God. This anticipation of being cut off from the Father and becoming an object of his wrath was staggering to Jesus. And so he says, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Being an object of his wrath and was so revolting The idea of being separated from his father was so staggering to to his human nature that Jesus asks, is there any other way? I I picture Jesus saying something like, or I mean, you know, like in this, him implying something like, Father, I, I shudder to think about being forsaken and abandoned by you. Is there any other way, Father? But then look at what he says next in the text. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So yes, he's staggering. Yes, he's recoiling. But Jesus has no intention of disobeying the Father. I want to be very clear about that. Jesus has no intention of disobeying the Father. Though he asks if there might be another way, Jesus, from the get-go, submits his desires to the Father's will. And so even as he's praying this and asking this, Father, is there any other way? And again, you know, <laughs> did he, what was the Father's response? I think Jesus knew what the Father's response was. No, there is no other way. Right? And Jesus knows that. As you read through the Gospels, he's, he's been predicting that he's going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders and killed. So Jesus knows there's no other way. But what we have here in the garden is it's like Jesus is wrestling and coming to terms in his emotions and in his will with what he already knows to be, in fact, the case. What he knows to be true. Another way of saying it is Jesus is submissive to the Father's will. But the weight of facing the wrath of God is crushing our Lord as he prays here in the garden. So again, I mean, what a, 
how can we even grasp this, right? May, may the, we're, we're completely dependent on the Spirit to, to grasp this, what Jesus is going through right here. To add to his sorrow, look at verse 40. As Jesus is experiencing this sorrow even unto death, that as he's in anguish so much so that one of the accounts says he's, his capillaries and his, and his face have broken to where he's actually bleeding. Look at what the disciples are doing in verse 40. What had he asked them to do? To just be there for him, right? To watch, to support him. But what are they doing? He came, verse 40, to the disciples and found them sleeping. So he said to Peter, right? I mean, must wake him up, right? Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Christ's friends have utterly failed to support him in his time of greatest need. They couldn't even stay awake to be with him. I mean, he's, he's in anguish. He's praying the most sorrowful prayer that's ever been prayed. And they're asleep. And so again, this just highlights the sufferings of Christ that as far as human companionship is concerned, Jesus is suffering this night alone. So again, I'm sensing like some disappointment in Christ right now with his disciples or I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me reading that into that. But we, we still see him loving them and, and teaching them. Even in this moment, look at verse 41. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, teachable moment here, guys. <laughs> Do you realize how much you need prayer? Right? Earlier he just told him to watch. Now he says, watch and pray. Why? Because your flesh is weak. He's not asking them to pray for Jesus, he's asking them to pray for themselves, right? He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. What does that mean? Well, he's saying pray that, you're not, that you don't give into temptation, right? He's warning them that they're about to be tempted to desert Jesus. And they're going to be tempted to disown Jesus. And so he, he's warning them. He's saying you need to pray. Temptation's coming, and, and you need to battle then this temptation through prayer. And, and again, you think enter into temptation. It's like Jesus is saying, the door of temptation is being about to be flung open before you guys. And you need to not enter into it. Pray that you won't enter in and go through in that temptation. And he tells them why. Why they need to pray that way. Because... The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And by flesh here, I, I don't think he's using flesh the way Paul usually uses flesh. Paul will talk about flesh, right, as our, as a, uh, our sinful nature or, or, or uh, to describe everything in us that's evil, right? Everything in us that's opposed to God's will. I think here Jesus is just talking about human weakness, Because he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know in your hearts you guys are saying, yes, you're devoted to me. Yes, you'll die with me. But you're weak. And so 
you can't do it in your own strength. Again, this is a lesson they're going to need to know, not just tonight, but moving forward, right? You need God's strength. Too often we try to do things in our own strength and we fail, don't we? Yes, we have good intentions. We want to please the Lord. We desire to do what's right. Yes, I'm going to read my Bible and yes, I'm going to pray. Yes, I'm I'm going to serve. But too often we find we're weak. We have physical weakness. We have remaining sin. And so we need this lesson too. We need to pray. We need God's strength. We cannot live the Christian life apart from God's grace. And what's beautiful about this whole interaction, right, is Jesus is practicing what he's preaching to them. Right? I mean, he's he's modeling it for them. He's praying. He's facing the greatest trial of his life, and he's praying. And so after waking them up, after warning them, after teaching them, exhorting them to pray, verse 42, again for the second time, he, Jesus, went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So see, it's like Jesus is no longer asking really for the cup of God's wrath to be taken away. It's like he's accepting that there's no other alternative. In order to glorify God by rescuing his people, Jesus must bear the wrath of God in their place. And so, once again, Jesus submits to the Father's will here. He says, your will be done. Jesus has accepted the Father's will, and he's praying now for strength to carry out that will. And then in verse 43, he checks again on the three disciples. He came and found, again found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So this time, Peter, James, and John are sleeping again, but this time Jesus doesn't even wake them. He just goes away and prays the third time, praying the same thing, right? My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You see what he's doing? He's praying for strength. He's, he's resolved to obey the Father. He's about, he knows he's about to enter full bore into the suffering of the cross. And he's declaring his dependence on the Father. How is he going to deal with the slander and the lies that are about to be hurled his way? How is he going to handle the, the shame and the excruciating pain of the crucifixion? How is he going to cope with, with God's unrelenting wrath on him? How's he going to deal with being cut off and forsaken by his heavenly father? The only way that he knows he can do that is, is pray. He needs the father's strength. He needs the spirit's strength. And what's beautiful about this now, this whole scene in the garden, and why I'm calling this the triumph of the cross, is we see the father answer this prayer. And we see Jesus strengthened. In his moment of great need, we see Jesus helped. He gives Jesus the grace to move forward in obedience, not in in any kind of fear, not in any kind of anxiety, but in full faith moving forward to endure his suffering. We see Jesus moving forward in total dependence and trust on the Father. 
Jesus accepts the Father's will. Unlike the disciples who are soon going to fail in their moment of crisis, Jesus here emerges from the garden victorious, triumphant, as he reaffirms his commitment to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, that that bitter, terrifying cup of the Father's wrath has been set before him, and though in his humanity it makes him recoil, Jesus is resolutely taking up that cup and saying, by your enabling, Father, I'm going to drink this, and I'm going to drink it to its very dregs. I'm going to suffer in the place of your people. What a beautiful picture of the suffering of Christ and of the love of Christ and the the triumph of Christ. As in a few weeks we read of him doing just that. Standing in our place. And drinking the cup of God's wrath. When we know that he doesn't deserve that cup. Because it's not his sins that are in that That cup, right? It's not his sins that are being punished. It's our sins. It's God's wrath against our sins that are in that cup. And yet Jesus, in love and obedience, is resolved to drink it all the way for you and me. It's like we sang earlier, right? Hallelujah. What a Savior. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not following Christ as your Lord. I I present to you Christ, the triumphant Savior. And I urge you to forsake your sin and to by faith embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. To experience the great love that he has for his own. I invite you to know that your sins are forgiven. To know that Jesus paid the punishment that you deserve. To know that you will never face the wrath of God because Christ has paid that penalty in your place. You can know that by embracing him as Lord and Savior. By placing all your faith and hope in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you don't do that, if you leave this place not doing that, you're still in your sin. And if you die still in your sin, then you yourself will have a cup to drink. You yourself will face the wrath of God. Do you want to face the wrath of God? None of us do. It is something that's going to be more terrifying than we can even imagine. And that's why we need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. Jesus emerges from the garden victorious, triumphant, ready to finish the race that was, is set before him, ready to endure the cross. We see Jesus now is moving forward powerfully, obeying the Father, just, just uh, 
being the one to just orchestrate all this and carry out this and move this forward. We're going to see that, right? Even though his enemies are trying to do this, it's like Jesus is the one in control here. He's going to face his suffering head on with power and authority as he's arrested now in verse 45. And we're, we're bringing this to a close, but we need to see this last section so we kind of come full circle on the disciples here. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus wakes the disciples and says, Hey, guys, it's time. The hour is at hand. It's happening now. I've been telling you about it, but the time has come. Here comes my betrayer. And again, we see Jesus is not panicked. He's not looking to run. He's, he's there in the garden, garden meeting his enemies head on. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So picture this large army, this mob of, of soldiers and, and collective people from the Jewish ruling council. There's even Roman soldiers there, one of the gospel accounts says. Torches moving through the darkness as this crowd of men armed with swords and clubs descends upon Jesus and his disciples there in the garden. And at the front of the crowd is Judas. Judas is leading the crowd to this spot in order to arrest Jesus. And verse 47 hones in on that, right? Calling him, Jesus calling him the betrayer. Verse 47 saying, Judas, one of the twelve. One of the twelve disciples, but yet now he's betraying Jesus. He's handing Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. And we read about that at the beginning of chapter 26, that they wanted to kill Jesus, but they wanted to be discreet about it. They knew Jesus was popular. They didn't want to do it. When all these pilgrims are here during Passover time, because they love Jesus and and he'll create a riot. And that's why Judas was the perfect um, person for them. Because he knows Jesus. He knows the places Jesus likes to go. And now Judas has has led them to a a discreet place in the middle of the night where they can arrest Jesus without the crowds being aware of it. Again, one of the twelve, the way that phrase says, I mean, just, and then betrayer, betrayer, it just highlights the heinousness of Judas' betrayal here. Here Judas, who had spent The past three years with Jesus, he had heard Jesus teach with power and and authority. He had seen Jesus heal, cast out demons, work miracles. He would seen Jesus love and have compassion on the the poor and and love those in need. He would seen Jesus always do what is right, never sin. He would seen Jesus be totally committed to the Father. And yet Judas is betraying him here. For his own personal gain, Judas decides to hand over the Son of God. Verse 48, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. So Judas has arranged this ahead of time, right? Because he knows it's going to be dark. He knows there's gonna, you know, the rest of the disciples are going to be there. They want to kind of do this uh, cleanly and quickly. And so he's, he told, had told the, the enemies, hey, I'm going to go up and I'm going to kiss him. And that's going to be the marker. So you know who to seize 
Verse 49, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. He's already breaking protocol by addressing a rabbi. Apparently, rabbis, were, were, you were always supposed to wait for the rabbi to address you. But Judas, you know, he's, he's done with that protocol. And then how, I know a kiss is a customary greeting in their day and age, but there's something very heinous about that, isn't there? That he would betray Jesus with a kiss. It heightens the despicableness, the audacity of what Judas is doing. Using a sign of affection to mark Jesus for arrest. To betray him. His kiss has, has become literally the kiss of death. This, again, heightens the sufferings, the pain of Jesus. I, I, I feel I need to skip some of that just for sake of time. We talked a little bit about that last week, but, you know, Jesus suffering betrayal from one of his trusted ones. Remember, he, he knew he was fulfilling Scripture, like David said, the one that I've, dipped my, um, that I've broken bread with, dipped my hand in the bread with, and the cup has betrayed me. Psalm 55 is another psalm where David laments the pain of betrayal, saying, you know, if it was an enemy who would be taunting me, I could take it. I know I have enemies, but this is a a friend, a trusted one who has betrayed me, who stabbed me in the back. And that's what Jesus is experiencing here. But he knows, again, that God's word is being fulfilled. Jesus has already predicted this. So then in verse 50, we see Jesus resolutely endure the betrayal. And again, he's the one, Jesus is, who keeps moving things forward. Jesus said to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Right? You know, the rest of the disciples are probably totally confused, right? They're like, what is going on? Why is Judas with these guys? What's going But Jesus isn't confused. He knows exactly what Judas is doing. And so he says, come on. Let's, 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 let's do this. So the men come up and seize Jesus, the God-man, almighty God is being bound, right? He's obviously allowing himself to be, to be bound. You think about what happened in the Old Testament when the guy touched the, the Ark of the Covenant, boom, dead. And here they're seizing God in the flesh. Verse 51, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from John's account this is Peter, right? <laughs> Impulsive Peter. And brave Peter, must say, I guess, in this moment. Trying to defend Jesus. Trying to swing and go for, go for the guy's neck, probably, but hits his ear. And while we might admire Peter's courage, we're going to see Jesus rebuke Peter right here because Peter's wrong. Peter's not understanding Jesus' mission. Just like earlier in the gospel, when he first declared by God's grace that Jesus is the Messiah... He doesn't understand Jesus' mission. He doesn't understand that Jesus has, has, is willingly heading to the cross. That Jesus has chose to lay down his life in order to save his people and glorify the Father. That Jesus is allowing himself to be arrested. Why? So he can give his life as a ransom for many. Peter doesn't understand the Messiah's mission and he doesn't understand the battle they're in, Right? They're in a spiritual battle. That's what Jesus was talking about earlier in the garden. You need to pray, right? 
The battle's not to be fought with swords. The battle's to be fought with prayer, Peter. So Jesus powerfully, right when things looked like they could have gotten out of hand, right? They only wanted to arrest Jesus. Well, now Peter's done this. You know, well, now they all could be arrested or killed. Jesus powerfully steps in, protects his disciples in verse 51. He, um, or 52, he tells Peter, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So Jesus rebukes Peter, tells him to knock it off. And we know from Luke's account that Jesus also heals the servant's ear instantly. He's de-escalating things, right? Peter would have probably been arrested or killed. But now he's, he's, he's taking care of that situation. And he tells Peter, I don't need your defense, right? I could call down 12 legions of angels, one for, one for me and each of us, right? There's 11 of them. A legion was 12,000 foot soldiers plus horsemen. Jesus could call down all these angels to defend him. He, Jesus could snap his fingers and, and these men would turn to dust. But Jesus, again, is allowing himself to be arrested because it's all part of God's plan to rescue sinners through Christ's sacrifice. So then in 55, verse 55, he turns to the crowds. Hey, guys, have you come out as a, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the t- temple teaching. You did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You see that common theme? We saw it again last week. According to plan, according to plan, scripture is being fulfilled. Jesus rebukes them. Am I some violent criminal? I've been teaching in, in your midst all this time, but now you come out with all these swords? Like I'm raising, uh, uh, promoting an insurrection here? This is an illegitimate arrest. We need to see that here. Jesus is sinless, but yet he's being treated like an evil robber, like a criminal, like he's reading, leading a rebellion when he's not, because they too don't understand Jesus and the nature of his kingdom. But yet, in all of this, Jesus is just in control, fulfilling the, God's word, yielding to his captors here, But all this, as we close, we see is too much for the disciples. And now we come full circle, right? We began our time this morning with Jesus declaring that they were going to desert him. And now it happens in verse 56 at the end. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All of this chaos, all of this confusion was too much for the disciples. And so they all, Peter included, flee leaving Jesus all alone. Just shortly earlier, they had all pledged to die with Jesus, and now they all abandon Jesus. And so, again, what a contrast. We see the failure of the disciples. But where they fail, we see Jesus is triumphant. Independence on the Father. Jesus has powerfully persevered through the anguish and has resolved once again to be obedient even to the point of death on a cross, even to the point of suffering under God's wrath. And so as, as we close considering that theme of the triumph of Jesus, I want you to rejoice in the triumph of Jesus. 
That on the cross, Jesus, Jesus triumphed over sin, death, and Satan. That he bore the sins and punishment of his people. That he fully satisfied God's just wrath. That he paid in full the penalty that our sins deserved by dying in our place. And that on the third day he rose triumphant from the dead. That he defeated, he was triumphant over sin, death, and Satan. That death was overcome, Satan was defeated, sins were fully paid because of the triumph of Christ. And my closing thoughts for us today. I just want to remind you of your blessings that you have. Because Christ, because Christ was triumphant, we who are united to Christ through faith are saved from our sins. Because Christ was triumphant, we will never face the wrath of God. Because Christ was triumphant, we are reconciled to our Creator. Because Christ was triumphant, we are forgiven, loved, and adopted by God. Because Christ was triumphant, we have a sure hope of eternal life with Christ in paradise. So believer today, may the triumph of Christ cause you to rejoice in your Savior. May the triumph of Christ serve as a model for you to endure suffering while trusting your Heavenly Father. May the triumph of Christ empower you to flee temptation and obey God. May the triumph of Christ remind you to pray. Asking the Father for daily strength and help. And may the triumph of Christ stir your heart to love and praise the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son to rescue us. We praise you, Jesus, for triumphantly embracing intense suffering in obedience to your Father and in great love toward us. We praise you for what your suffering has accomplished. We, I pray that you will remind us often of the blessings that you have secured for us through your finished work. Help us to, to joyfully endure suffering, Lord. I know many face suffering daily. Help us to endure that suffering as we trust you and as we look forward to Christ's return. And now we pray that you will enlarge our hearts to once again sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand, please, and we'll close by singing our praises to our Savior.